Hey, everybody. Welcome to Friday the 13th, the series. I'm your producer, Robert. And I'm your host, Hill Street. And after a complete, spoiler-filled recap of the episode, we are going to discuss the show you either just learned existed or always wondered how it existed. We promise the answers will be few and far between, because we're just here to have some goofity fun exploring a show that, despite or possibly even because of its faults, isn't good and isn't so bad it's good, but is still somehow oddly charming. Let's dive in, shall we? We have both seen episodes one through seven only, and you have just received the script and are ready to read through it for the very first time. Are you ready, Hill Street? I'm ready. Then, action. Episode seven, Dr. Jack. Okay, show, where are we exactly? You clearly want to evoke the dark, winding back alleys of Dickensian in London, and the guy warming his hands over a barrel fire, and the other guy offering a trench-coated passerby a bottle of booze definitely fit the bill. But then why the two seemingly affluent couples strolling arm in arm? Did both couples just stumble into Crime Alley, or are respectable society and the police ignoring a barrel fire on a thoroughfare? Our trench-coated passerby approaches a flower vendor and offers a hundred-dollar bill, which an errant breeze carries down a side alley. Hey, is this the first concrete evidence the series occurs in the good old U.S. of A? No, no, I simply won't have it. I choose to believe this is simply an American refusing to use loonies or Canadian tire dollars or any of Canada's other seemingly nonsensical currencies that are actually real. Honestly, if a Canadian told me their businesses are legally obligated to accept payment in grams of maple syrup, I wouldn't bat an eye. Have there been previous examples that definitively tie the show to America? Like, have you noticed any license plates or anything? I don't know. It's maybe, yeah. I guess I haven't really thought about it that much, but you might be right. If you think of one, let me know. But uh, it just occurred to me that other, until we saw that $100 bill, I don't think there was anything that kind of definitively tied this to one particular place. Yeah. Turns out the show takes place at Uruguay. Who knew? <laughs> you can totally edit this out later and put it somewhere else. But I just have to tell you this because it just randomly popped into my mind because my phone lit up next to me. Go on. <laughs> my nephew's two and a half years old and he's really like starting to talk now. But you know, only in like little bits and phrases. And I have this like really scary picture of Chucky as the background of my phone, the doll Chucky, like his, his nose is all scrunched up and he's got like scissors out and he's about to cut the head off of a Jack in the Box toy. Do you know that picture? Oh, so the poster from like the second or third one? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the background of my phone. And my nephew thinks that it's my baby, like my child. Every time my phone lights up, he goes, it's so <laughs> It's so Yeah, you you wish. I know. It's because he thinks that because the background of my sister's phone and my brother-in-law's phone is their baby. It's him and his little brother, that their their infant. So he thinks the background of everyone's phone is their child. Ah, okay. So every time my phone lights up, he calls me EE because he's trying to say auntie. So every time my phone lights up, he goes, "Aw, EE baby. EE baby." And he like pets Chucky. He goes, E-baby, so cute. <laughs> E-baby. I'm like, yep, that's my baby. Isn't he cute? And he goes, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, thanks, Jameson. <laughs> and Chucky's just so hideous in this picture. I think it's hilarious. Wow, that kid is in for one rude awakening when you finally show him that movie. I know. I know. And, um... And I just think it's so sweet that he tells me how cute he is. I'm like, you are such a good liar, even at two. <laughs> E baby, so cute. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, delightful. I know. Okay. <laughs> the vendor is so accommodating, he runs off to fetch the bill. The scenario actually represents quite the acting challenge for a Canadian, resisting the urge to apologize before helpfully retrieving the bill the other person lost. If, like me, you guessed the premise of this episode from the title, you know how this plays out. Trenchcoat follows him into the side alley, produces an antique scalpel, and slits his throat. But twist! The secrecy was for naught, because multiple onlookers discover them before the arterial blood hits the pavement and Trenchcoat is on the lam. Uh-oh! The Halloween episode taught us that although Canadians don't lock their doors, they do gate their alleys, and that seed bears fruit right here. Time for the coolest aspect of this episode, bar none. This scalpel can cut through anything! If Wolverine's claws were lightsabers, they wouldn't be more powerful than this antique blade. 
and a shower of sparks, Trenchcoat slashes through the steel bars, steps through the hole, and runs off into the night. All right, full disclosure, Hill Street, did you like that scalpel being used on uh, various objects as much as I did? Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. When they cut through the bars, I was like, okay, okay. Although the knife was nowhere near the bars in the shot. He, I feel like he was pretty far away, but that's okay. I got the gist. <laughs> yeah, you expect that kind of thing in stunt work, but how he missed the bars by a country mile, I don't know. I know, I know. <laughs> I was like, okay, <laughs> clearly this guy is good for one thing and it's not this. And Curious Goods, ah, you know the drill by now. Can we get one more pass on In Curious Goods, ah, uh, you know the drill by now, just sounding more defeated? In Curious Goods, ah, you know the drill by now. Great, thank you. Uh-huh. The only reason we had onlookers in the previous scene is to justify them reporting the incident and the newspapers printing it so the gang can start tracking down the haunted curio. What's new is Mickey's absolute disdain for the central conceit of this episode, that the scalpel was once owned by Jack the Ripper. Outside a knife store, Jack, Jack Marshak, not Jack the Ripper, explains that the store owner, their only lead, is a former convict with a penchant for knives and knife-based crime. Why is half the sign for Kim's knives, oops, why is half the sign for Jim's knives missing? It looks torn off, but is it supposed to be meta humor? That half a knife store sign has been cut away? Also, this is Canada, so doesn't that sign also need to say Jim's cutlery? Cutlery. Cutlery. <laughs> no, I'm deferring to you. You said you speak French. Cutlery. Let's look it up. Hold on. Cutlery. Jeez, that's a hard one. Okay. Also, this is Canada, so doesn't that sign also need to say Jim's cutlery? Ooh, très chic, Hill Street. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Oui. <laughs> <laughs> It's telling that the most intimidating convict this series can muster is knife-based. You know what beats knife? Gun. And sword, spear, and possibly warhammer, I suppose. My point is, there's been very few guns in this series. Our heroes never have one, nor do the villains. The police in the teacup episode did, but if everyone doesn't have a gun, then who will police the police? Compare that with America's Supernatural. Leather jackets, hot rods, and so many guns our leads are literally named after them. <laughs> Inside the store, the only war crime we need to be concerned about is the costume department and set dresser teaming up to steal this scene's thunder. I'm sorry, do you realize you just said war crime? Did I really? You've been watching CNN recently, Hill Street? <laughs> I have not, no, but I, I think you, after talking about Supernatural, all my brain could think about was war. Inside the store, the only crime we need to be concerned about is the costume department and set dresser teaming up to steal this scene's thunder. I submit into evidence Exhibit 1, the knife earring worn by Jim, who I once again wish had been played by Michael Gross. Exhibit 2, the enormous Swiss Army knife promotional positioned to create parallax when we dolly passed it. Ryan, no need to wear Roy Orbison's shades indoors to seem tough, buddy. With that single earring screaming poser, Jim has been rendered less intimidating than Roberto, the stabbing robot from Futurama. Jim claims he doesn't carry antique knives. Then what's with the dueling swords behind you? Or the long sword on the wall? Or the medieval hatchet and battle axe over your door? I'm getting mixed messages here, Jim. Poor Jim is rendered even less intimidating when he falls for Mickey's. Hey, the scalpel's right there, Gambit. To which he gets halfway through claiming it can't be because he already sold it, before realizing he just fell for a trick that wouldn't work on a third grader. This lazy bit of writing is mind-boggling given that it was entirely unnecessary. You all know he had it. Just show him his name in the sales manifest. We know it's his fucking homework. Where's the fucking money, you little brat? Are you familiar with this line from The Big Lebowski? No. I've not seen that movie. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, uh, your delivery's spot on, so continue. But uh, we'll have to watch that together at some point. <laughs> so to actually progress the plot, Jack blackmails Jim with photographs of him doing something nefarious in 1979. In a moment, we'll learn this was a complete bluff, making it the second bluff in a row. Pretty, pretty risky. Jim names Dr. Howlett, then acts terrified of the doctor finding out who gave him up. Hey, guy, you're supposed to be a knife psycho who went to jail for gutting a man. Show a little backbone. Also, you sold the scalpel two years ago? Oh, so four Mr. Sims ago. Has this small Canadian city had a Jack the Ripper equivalent running around for two years? Two years? What is with the insanely long time intervals in this series? Storytelling 101 show. These long time spans are killing any sense of dramatic urgency. 
very true. Did you think they were going a little bit too hard with Jim, the knife store owner? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I also felt like the knife store owner was really pushing his choices as an actor. I felt he was a little too much. Oh, interesting. Uh, any specific examples you can point to or can you get a little more into the weeds on that? I feel like his acting would have been more effective if he had relaxed a little bit. I felt like I could see his homework, if that makes sense. Like I could I could see what he was trying to accomplish rather than believing it. Like I felt like he was like, I gotta be really intense here because this is important to me. And instead of just being in it, I felt like he pushed everything he was trying to do and I could see it. I felt like he was acting rather than being real, you know? But I felt that about a lot of the actors in this in this whole episode. You gotta lose yourself in the moment, man. Yeah, yeah. It was like he needed to relax into the part a little bit. I felt like he was pushing too hard and I didn't believe that for that type of character. I don't feel like that guy would be that intense so well you know what we'll just have to watch the littlest hobo next and see if that actor made any progress because he pops up in there oh my god that's hilarious i cannot believe that's the title of that the littlest hobo yeah such an odd choice it sounds so silly (laughs) just out of curiosity if i had not told you that was a series about a dog what conclusion would you reach based on the title alone i don't know like you just a picture like a very short man with uh raggedy clothes and a bindle on a stick over his shoulder exactly Exactly. Yeah, I picture a hobo. (laughs) A little tiny hobo. Yep, makes sense. The scene ends on a shot of Jim, seemingly feeling regret. Nice to throw the actor a bone, but why? Gotta love the extras on motorcycles outside the shop pointing out just how out of place our three heroes look as knife shop customers. Then again, these bikers would look a lot cooler firing up their choppers and riding off. But that would make noise, so they're just sitting on them like no one does. Maybe they're just waiting for it to rain so they can tour the Bowery. I knew that would come back when I saw them. I knew the spike in the rain would come back. (laughs) Guilty as charged. Actually, I doubt these were professional extras, as they would know better than to draw attention to themselves by acknowledging the principal cast. Probably the crew is once again pressed into on-screen service. Chris Wiggins slips in a little French accent to Cracker Jack Marshak's lines, which I like to believe he improvised on his own. A hospital parking only sign helpfully informs us what we're looking at is supposed to be a hospital and not an estate house turned into modest single occupant apartments with on-site laundry facilities. Inside, after Dr. Howlett finishes a surgery witnessed by a combination of hospital staff and press, he receives their applause as he is welcome to Ravenbrook Hospital. Ravenbrook? Is it a subsidiary of the Umbrella Corporation? Do you know what the Umbrella Corporation is? Is that for that Umbrella Academy show? Ooh, that's a good guess. But no, uh, as something of a gamer yourself, I thought you might know it from the Resident Evil games. Oh, no, I haven't played those. I, those ones make me too motion sick. <laughs> okay, <laughs> fair. I began my career in medical school of this hospital. Why is the line written that way? Or, since we can't see him deliver it, why not ADR it if he forgot to say the... Also, why so complicated with him training here, then going away, just to come back? In the Winchester Mobile, Ryan draws out his line like he momentarily forgot the doctor's name, but he only had to deliver a single line. Then he draws out another line. Does he always do that? Hill Street? No, I don't think so. I think he messed up. (laughs) Yeah, for a very simple scene in a car, I'm pretty sure he was not driving. I think this was green screened. It really just seemed like he didn't know his lines, even though they were very short. I guess they didn't want to reshoot it. They were like, eh, whatever. (laughs) We're not going into lunch penalties for this one. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) In a heavily padded exposition dump from Jack, we learn a lot about the hospital that I'm guessing will never matter. In summation, Ravenbrook is going through rough times. Dr. Howlett transferred there because it would draw even more attention to him, and some suspect Jack the Ripper was a surgeon. Even more pointless, the show keeps trying to create drama with Dr. Howlett having some detractors, but what can you really critique about a doctor who takes on the toughest cases and has never lost a patient? His only known flaw is that he really likes the limelight. Yeah, he's a little full of himself. He's a doctor! I know, I had the same thought. I was like, yeah, this is like every doctor I've ever met, especially male doctors. Sorry, hate to say it, but I really don't know what they're... Yeah, by all means, let's hear about your insight into the medical world. Well, I have to be careful, but yeah, I just think like, especially male doctors, their egos are out of control. They're all insufferable. They, They act like that, exactly like that. Although actually they're worse. They're worse. They're less, they're less kind and less friendly and less willing to even talk to people unless the only people they really are willing to talk to are other surgeons. So this guy was probably friendlier. (laughs) 
wow, you always hear that and read about that, but you figure like, oh, surely that's been corrected by now. Surely the health industry has become self-aware. No, it's pretty bad. Oh, sorry to hear that. Yeah, I mean, I don't really care. I always think it's kind of silly. I'm like, like, I don't know. I I think it's so silly that people get egos that big. Because I'm, I'm thinking to myself, it's not like you were born with superpowers. You made a choice that other people could make if they wanted to. I'm not saying anybody could complete medical school. I understand that that's a great feat. But at the same time, get over yourself. Anyone has the potential to rack up that much debt. Exactly. Sure, Ryan. Just park directly in front of the hospital's main entrance. The ambulances can maneuver around you. I wouldn't question it, but we were just shown a sign indicating where vehicles are supposed to park. So, now I know why we learned Dr. Howlett went to school at Ravenbrook. There's a doctor here who doesn't like him because she knows he was an awful student. Fair, but this insight has nothing to do with anything. Now, in his 80s standard-issue business suit and Leland palmering as hard as he can, Dr. Howlett's argument for his showboating performance is that it works. Wow, that is powerful weak. The gang arrives, and Mickey is distracted by shock paddles being used on a dying patient in the hall. Okay, yeah, I have to pause there. I'm like, whenever, ever do they shock somebody back to life in the hallway? Like, why are patients even in the hallway? That was so weird. <laughs> right outside the main reception desk? I, I, yeah, literally. I was like, what is happening here? And, the, and the, really, she was the only one even blinking an eye at it. Everyone else acted like business as usual. I was like, what is this place? I mean, the hospital's point of view is it's not a bug. It's a feature. <laughs> we want people to know we provide medical care here. You got to have someone being resuscitated in the main hall. <laughs> it's funny. The nurse at reception is lit from below like she's about to offer Jack Torrance a drink, but points the gang in Dr. Howlett's direction. Probably time to bring up the mystery woman we keep seeing around the hospital, because she tapes or tacks a photograph of a... Okay, I'll get back to that. Um, because she tapes or tacks a photograph of a young woman to... <laughs> Probably time to bring up the mystery woman we keep seeing around the hospital, because she tapes or tacks a photograph of a young woman to a seemingly random door, then hurries off. I must comment on the tapes or tacks thing because at first I was like, oh, she's taping a photograph. But then it, I see a thumbtack and I'm like, how is she thumbtacking this photograph in right now? That is a freaking five inch thick metal door. Oh, you had the exact same thought I did. That's why I took the time to write tapes or tacks because I was confused. That's hilarious that you commented on it because I thought, well, I bring this up and I thought, nah, it's not worth it. It's whatever. But the, the fact that you wrote tapes or tacks, I was like, OK, I'm going to comment on it because I assumed she was taping it. And then it looks like she put a uh, push pin in and i'm like how are you push pinning in this door right now yeah i do a steel door <laughs> yeah and why would they even try to make it look like she's thumbtacking it because why not just use a freaking piece of tape why are they making this complicated because why is this show like this why 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 <laughs> why is she assassinating a man in the halls of a hospital who knows <laughs> yeah this whole part was so weird dr hallett approaches it examines it and discards it Boy, did he. Just meh. Just throws it over his shoulder behind him like nuts to this. Just then, our mystery woman steps out and levels a gun at him. So now we know she's American. That's right. She's a supernatural alien. Commercial break! Some shows have a monster of the week. This series has a curio of the week. And so do we. Believe me, no one paid us for the following endorsements. And once they hear the show, it's more likely they'll pay us to retract them. We just want to share some cool things with you while simultaneously using our platform to give a little free promotion to those without a massive advertising budget. So Hill Street, what is your Curio of the Week? My Curio of the Week is a little tiny online store called Fabulous Frights. I actually discovered them when I was living in LA. Store for a change of pace, huh? Yeah, uh... I discovered them when I went to like a horror convention. They had a little tiny booth there and they have all like Halloween, gothic, macabre, horror decor and antiques. They make the most interesting little spooky things um, that you can put around your house. They have like little creepy doll heads and they take old pieces from like uh, thrift stores, I guess, and they refurbish them and make them into cool pieces and they just make the most interesting stuff. I literally used to meet up with this this woman in parking lots to pick up <laughs> these unique pieces from her. It was hilarious. Um, I would meet up with her. Uh, kids don't meet up with people in parking lots. Yeah, that's valid. 
but I had met her several times at these conventions and I trusted her and um, I would meet up with her and, and buy these little like baby doll head trinkets and they were just so cool. So she has an Instagram or they, I think it's two ladies that work together called Fabulous Frights I and mean, you can buy things on there. I don't think they have an Etsy. I could be wrong, but I know they have an Instagram that's just one word, Fabulous Frights. They have the coolest, most interesting little pieces. Kids, if you're going <laughs> to... Kids, if you're going to buy severed baby doll heads, be sure to do it from a reputable dealer in a brick and mortar store. Yeah, you want a good baby doll head dealer for sure. You don't want to chintz out for that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Go legit for sure. Some Nigerian prince contacting you about baby doll heads. <laughs> that company didn't make your Ouija board table, did they? They did. Yep, they did. Yeah, super cool. By the way, do you pronounce that Ouija board or Ouija board? Ouija board. Oh, okay. You're old school like me. Yeah. Definitely. I feel like there's there's been a push toward Ouija. Am I wrong about that? I've heard that, but that's wrong. My curio of the week is the YouTube channel Pasta Grammar. Unfortunately, no one can be told what Pasta Grammar is. You have to see it for yourself. You take the blue pill, the story ends. You wake up in the Olive Garden and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, you stay on YouTube, and Pasta Grammar shows you how deep Italian cuisine goes. Oh, I know about real Italian food, you're thinking. I've had truffles, I know what guanciale is, I've even grilled swordfish. Cool, but that's a bit like saying, I speak conversational Italian, without even being aware every region and pretty much every city in Italy has a unique dialect spoken only locally. Ever eaten pasta dressed in a sauce of only butter and minced anchovies? Ever seen a cauliflower donut? Ever purchased pig's blood to make chocolate pudding? Ever even conceived of such notions? Now, I like Italian-American food as much as the next person, probably more. But if you want to learn how to make the food Italians, Sicilians, and Sardinians actually eat, let Pasta Grammar be your guida. Guida is Italian for guide, so really, you're the racist. In their pursuit of Dr. Howlett, the gang stumbles across the potential assassin and disarms her. Dang it, the gun doesn't go off. Show, you can't play with an American audience's hopes and dreams like that. So true. Was disappointing as heck. Gotta introduce a gun and not have it fired. Yeah, what the hell? I was excited. Remember back in episode one when young Mistress Mary stepped out into Pedo Alley, murdered a creep with a Victorian doll, returned to her parents with blood on her, confessed to murder, her parents just laughed it off, and then the story plowed ahead under an internal logic all its own? Well, now our erstwhile... Erstwhile? Erstwhile, yes. Well, now our erstwhile assassin, Jean, is restrained to a bed as if she's a patient of this hospital's heretofore unknown psychiatric ward, and not an interloper who just attempted to double-tap a doctor. I joked earlier about this hospital's connection to the Umbrella Corporation, but I'm not laughing anymore. Just to double down on the insanity, the two orderlies who strapped Jean down just let Cracker Jack Marshak stroll into her room. One even gnaws at Jack to indicate him to the other orderly, just like the bikers laughing at our heroes earlier. Hey, get a load of this guy. He actually wants to talk to the attempted murderer we just involuntarily committed. So yeah, did your brain break when that happened? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was so confused. My brain broke a few times in this episode. That was definitely a, a huge question mark to me. My brain broke over the thumbtack, for sure. Yeah, in my opinion, we haven't seen this level of insanity since episode one. Yeah. <laughs> like, they treat her like she's already a patient. Yeah. And she just, like, escaped, got some clothes and a gun. And I know. And now they're just putting her back into the psychiatric wing. But she's not. She wandered in off the street. I know. I know. So the, I actually had the same question for a little bit. For a little bit, I was operating under the assumption that she was a patient. And then I was like, oh, no, I don't think she was. If it wasn't for the existence of Lieutenant Fishbine, I would absolutely be convinced Canada just has no legal system. Yeah, I know. It, it, it is confusing. <laughs> is there some deeper meaning hidden in the background of this episode? Is it all some meta sanity test on the viewer? What is happening and why is it happening? Cliff Gorman, the actor who plays Dr. Howlett, is fun and sufficiently medicine and weird, but the Oscar goes to Elva Mai Hoover, who plays Jean. The camera is pointed at her and she's not wasting a moment of it. Jack's response to her anguished resuscitation of how her daughter both idolized and was murdered by Dr. Howlett is to coolly ask- Jack's response to her anguished recitation? I thought I added an extra syllable. Yeah, it would make sense. He turned it into resuscitation, which in a hospital setting makes a lot of sense, but- <laughs> Jack's response to her anguished recitation of how her daughter both idolized and was murdered by Dr. Howlett is to coolly ask, How did you know it was Howlett? I realize you're not a doctor, Jack, but gotta work on that bedside manner regardless. 
Short answer, she didn't. What did you think of her performance? I thought it was way too much. I thought she overdid it. I mean, I, I know that this was a long time ago and acting was a little more dramatic back then, but she annoyed me. I thought she overdid it. I thought same, a little kind of the same thing I was saying about the guy in the shop. I thought she could have pulled back and it would have been more effective. She was dedicated and going for it, which I can always appreciate, but she drove me nuts. There was no like level to it at any point because she was just so overwrought the whole time. And I thought it would have been more effective if she pulled back, did less, and then had moments of anguish. But it was just overwrought anguish the entire time, and I, I, it irritated me. Yeah, I think it would have been nice if maybe it had built to that. Yeah. But overall, though, I still liked her in a way I wasn't big on Knife Store Jim. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can agree. Short answer, she didn't. So like any good cop, she started with a conclusion, then found evidence to support it. Kind of concerned you don't question her methodology, Jack. Louise Roby's performance, as Mickey confronts Dr. Howlett in his office, pretending to be hospital staff checking to make sure his move-in is going well, is one of my favorite performances of hers so far. Very Rick Deckard looking for those little dirty holes. Outside the office, Ryan volunteers to watch Dr. Howlett while Mickey runs off to inform Jack. Despite all the signage to the contrary, I guess anyone can wander anywhere in this hospital and it's cool. You know, it was so funny. This was a long time ago, but a very good friend of mine was in an accident and had injured his leg really badly. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm laughing already. <laughs> I know. Good story. Yeah, you know which accident I'm talking about, obviously. But they uh, transferred him in the middle of the night to another hospital. And he had texted me which room he was in. And there were so many wings to this hospital. And me and his mom were, like, determined to find him. And because it was the middle of the night, there was very little staff. So I literally just wandered through this hospital, through all the different wings, checking. I think he was in a room in, like, the 300s, the third floor. And I was just checking all the different, like, 300 rooms. Not, like, going in the rooms, but, like, checking out the areas and saw a bunch of empty rooms. And until finally I just found his room and found him. And I just remember thinking, like, I cannot believe that I just managed to wander through this hospital in the middle of the night until I found his room and nobody stopped me. And it just kind of reminds me of this, like being able to just go through a hospital, you know, normally hospitals, you get, you can't go anywhere without, you know, someone escorting you or staff or something. But I'll never forget being like, I, this hospital must be ridiculously run because I just completely on my own just wandered through this entire building until I found, until I found my friend. That was so weird. It was a weird experience. Oh, you mean all those Halloween films were right after all? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was like, that was a, that was the only time ever I've experienced something like that because any other time I've gone to visit someone in a hospital, there's like a million check-ins. And then if you're going to a patient's room, you got to be buzzed in and walked by a nurse or something. But yeah, this one time at like three in the morning. I just went all over this hospital and no one have never no one ever questioned me. It was weird. Were you carrying a ladder? Because you know a person with a ladder will be allowed in anywhere. Exactly, you don't question that. Security will get the door for you if you're carrying a ladder. <laughs> I'll keep that in mind, though. But I did look confident. Oh, you look confident, did you? You were absolutely confident you didn't know where you were going? I did. Exactly. Anytime I walked by nurses or any staff, I looked very confident, so they didn't question me. But I had no idea where I was going until I finally found him. <laughs> and then you killed him. Yep, exactly. Why would I not? Uh, in our next... In our next out-of-body moment... What? No, I was just telling you where to start. Sorry. Oh, I always know. In our next out-of-body moment, Jack speculates on how much danger Ryan is in because of what... Be well, God. In our next out-of-body moment, Jack speculates on how much danger Ryan is in because of what Dr. Howlett will do to him if he even suspects Ryan. Suspects him of what? He doesn't know Ryan from Adam. Remember what I... Let me try all of that again. Oh, okay. Actually, I, uh, <laughs> I didn't think the wheels were coming off, but yeah, go for it. <laughs> Knock yourself out, kiddo. In our next out-of-body moment, Jack speculates on how much danger Ryan is in because of what Dr. Howlett will do to him if he even suspects Ryan. Suspects him of what? He doesn't know Ryan from Adam. Remember what I said last episode about Canadian shows prioritizing interesting over making sense? I rest my case. I continually have an inner monologue of, can I salvage that in editing? And that time my, my editing alert didn't go off. So we're good, you mean? We're definitely good on your second pass. But even the first time I was like, meh, I can make it work. That's funny. <laughs> I think it would have been okay. I just, I felt like I was like slurring a bit. It just didn't feel good. Copy that. <laughs> That's funny. Can I salvage that in editing? You poor thing. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I see the set designers want to rend reality asunder, too. 
Ryan follows Dr. Howlett through a door with an enormous keep out sign that also states, closed to all personnel. All personnel? So whom is that part of the building for? It might as well say, keep out, trespassers only. <laughs> Mickey and Jack sneak into Dr. Howlett's office, find the scalpel missing, and wonder aloud why he has it since he isn't due in surgery again that day. But the most interesting aspect of the scene to me is realizing they must be filming in a real location because the trees outside are blowing in the wind. You don't see that much in film and TV, and it's kind of a nice touch. On his way down into the bowels of the hospital, Ryan the Lion passes the same keep out sign, except this one is badly damaged, including being torn nearly in two. How the hell did that happen? It was strange to see half a sign outside the knife shop, but that one looked like maybe it was the result of fire. This is just baffling. Also, I'm going to conjecture this is the exact same piece of set dressing torn in two after they shot the previous scene. I know I do a lot of speculating, but so does this show. Jack now speculates that the scalpel needs to take a life in order to save lives, and Mickey speculates that Ryan the Lion is now in some kind of danger, even though they have no idea where he currently is. Dr. Howlett keeps his trench coat and fedora in a locker in the hospital's sub-basement, as you do. Ryan covertly discovers this, then immediately gives away his position like a total spaz, and the chase is on. Serendipitously, Mickey and Jack are standing by the keep out door as the chase gets crazy, and even more Feli felicious? Felicitous. Serendipitously, Mac and- Mac and Jicky. <laughs> <laughs> Mac and cheese. Mac and Jicky. Serendipitously, Mickey and Jack are standing by the keep outdoors. The chase gets crazy and even more felicious- Oh, I forgot again. Felicitous. Felicitous. Even more felicitous, they somehow hear the commotion of a foot race happening at least one level below them. Ryan hides in the morgue, Dr. Howlett picks the only open drawer, stabs the hell out of someone's poor grandpa, and is enrupted- Enrupted? Jesus Christ. <laughs> in, I'm, I'm unraveling here, I'm unraveling, it's happening. Uh, we're coming up to a commercial break pretty soon. Hold in there. <laughs> stabs the hell out of someone's poor grandpa, and is interrupted. oh Jesus. And is interrupted by Mickey and Jack breaking in, unarmed, to get murdered, I guess. This might not be the smartest plan, in fact it's not a plan at all, but they're trying to save their friends, so I get it. But Jack's decision to chase down Dr. Hallett reveals deep suicidal tendencies previously unseen in the character. To his credit, Jack initially gets the upper hand, but the fight tends to go to the participant with the blade that can cut through steel bars, and that is the case here. Speaking of credit, some is due to both Chris Wiggins and Cliff Gorman, who put on a good show with some intense grappling. The sloppy, untrained nature of it actually works in its favor, selling the realism of the situation. And the absurdities of the fright elevator doors being wide open and an old wheelchair just happening to be nearby are balanced by the fight maneuvering Jack organically into a position where he has no choice but to hang from the elevator's cable completely at the mercy of Dr. Howlett. This is worlds better than the fright elevator scene from episode one with Uncle Lewis. What did you think of this fight? I it was pretty good i thought they had some good action going yeah it wasn't as big as that like vertical chase scene through the boiler room in uh episode three cupid's quiver uh-huh but yeah not too shabby i thought yeah and it seemed like yeah it seemed like the actors were actually doing it which i guess owing to this show's low budget i guess they weren't going to hire stunt people if they didn't have to but uh yeah you could see them in you know close-ups and mediums and it seemed like they were actually doing most of it themselves right yeah no i thought it was pretty good well, I guess Michael- Michael, Jesus. Well, I guess Mickey and Ryan the Lion will bumble in at any moment, awkwardly crash into Dr. Howlett and inadvertently save the- Holy shit, he cut the cable! Not Jack, the whole elevator cable! And no, Jack didn't catch a ledge or something on his way down. After a genuinely chilling off-camera scream from Mickey, she and Ryan the Lion rush into- She and Ryan the Ryan- <laughs> His names are killing me. I don't know why. She and Ryan the Lion- Okay, let me take the whole line. After a genuinely chilling off camp- Red leather, yellow leather, red leather, yellow leather. <laughs> the walls in the mall are totally, totally, totally tall. <laughs> After a genuinely chilling off-camera scream from Mickey, she and Ryan the Lion rush in to discover Jack's body one or two levels below. Well, you were right last episode, Hill Street. No one's safe. They just killed Jack. I mean, there's no way he could have survived that fall. It would be an absolute miracle if he did and would require years of rehabilitation. Not that he would ever be 100% again. That's it. No more Cracker Jack Marshak. He's done. It's the only way these events would make sense. The only way. Commercial break! 
If you like the horror genre as much as we do, you can preview the horror comic book Requiem for a Psychopath right now for free at the Inner Demon Entertainment website. Imagine a world in which horror film slashers are real, then imagine a troubled teen bringing one out of retirement to help him take revenge on his bullies. It was written by me and drawn by friend of the show, Stephen Yu. Again, that's Requiem for a Psychopath on the Inner Demon Entertainment website. And, if you dig it, please either review and rate it five stars on Amazon, or don't rate and review it at all. Ratings of less than five stars send the algorithm into murder mode for some reason. Thanks. I hope you enjoy it. We return from commercial to Jacob's Ladder, already in progress. A team of medics is rushing Jax's corpse through the halls like there's still a chance of saving him. It's insane, but very cinematic. You ever seen Jacob's Ladder? Yeah, I love it. But I I didn't think about the comparison, but I totally see what you mean now that I'm thinking about it. Yeah, the nightmare hospital scenes. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, they're actually really well done on Friday the 13th, I have to say. Yeah, well, all the hospital stuff in this was pretty good. I mean, even the surgeries and stuff were, were well done, like good uh props and setting and everything you know yeah they got a real location so it shows yeah talk for a second all right can you still hear me okay yeah i probably had you a little louder than i usually do so i turned you down oh well two can play that game (laughs) and the world's darkest waiting room a genuinely nice moment in which ryan tells mickey the joke jack would make is sullied by a doctor appearing through a door with a no entry sign on it which looks like spray paint has been used to scratch out multiple words so i have a new theory about this show I think it must have been made very quickly by a crew that spoke half only English and half only French. As a result, the subtle implication of a hospital that has seen better days is interpreted as this hospital exists in a Mad Max wasteland in which the roads are ruled by zombie bikers. Either that or all creative decisions were expressed through glitchy (laughs) walkie-talkies. One or the other, maybe both. Back to the scene. Why is it so dark? This is how you shoot a scene if you're trying to convey a circuit breaker has been tripped. Luis Roby's delivery of, surgery? Is it serious? Doesn't bring me to tears, but the fact she could even deliver it with a straight face deserves a standing ovation. Is it serious? The middle-aged man who fell down an elevator shaft? Yeah, Mickey. It's serious. That's funny. (laughs) What's the most ridiculous line you think you've ever had to deliver? Oh, God. Oh, I don't know. I've had some, some seriously bad ones i specifically remember this one scene where i was playing a character who was trying to seduce a married man and there was i was always delivering these lines about like let's just have some wine and talk and i was all about pushing wine on him and um i can't remember the scene i could probably find it and get back to you but it was the whole scene was so cringy and overwrought and embarrassing i just could hardly stand to do it i hated it so much um i still have it somewhere on my computer i think but it was like just dreadful there was just no saving this scene you're acting could you be meryl streep and that scene was agony what was the play um it was a it was film for some tv show or something that i don't know if it ever went to air it was like like the uh, it had like all the cliches in it very like you know but you know she would never love you like i do and i i don't know I, honestly that's 50 times better than the line probably was it was just so you doing a little punch up on the fly <laughs> yeah that, but, exactly but um god it was so i wish i could remember the lines like i for some reason i just can't stop thinking about all the the, the pushing i did to like but isn't this nice with us like holding our glasses of wine over the fire and just being together and i was like oh my god it was just so bad that again that's 50 times better than the line actually was it was just i was thinking like who writes this and thinks yeah this is good this sounds real it was just unbelievably painful so yeah the dialogue was just exposition of you describing what we were seeing in the scene yeah it was exactly it was like and I'm like, who talks like this? And this is, it's like, it kind of almost reminded me of like somebody who's never actually, almost like someone who didn't speak English writing it. Like, oh, what would, it, what would it, uh, somebody who's trying to seduce someone say? They would talk about the warm fire and drinking wine. And you know what I mean? It was just like every type of cliche you could ever think of being in this scene. It was just, so yeah, that scene. Isn't this so lovely, darling? Us in front of the fire, drinking this wine, me describing everything that's happening. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was, that was torture. And it was like, 
just the scene that I couldn't get away from. I feel like I worked on that scene for weeks, and I'll never forget that scene. It was just awful, just awful. Did you workshop it with Doug? Yes, I did. <laughs> was he able to? Was he able? I to? did, and he wouldn't let me. He wouldn't let me complain about it. Would not let me complain about it. He'd be like, "So what? Some people talk like this. Sometimes it. Sometimes it do be like that. <laughs> like you know, like suck it up. We're gonna make it good." And I was like, "Doug, there's there's no making this good." He was like. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> Sometimes it do be like that. Classic Doug. Oh, yeah. Just how he talks. Sometimes it do be like that. Uh, speaking of getting back to each other, uh, before I forget, I'll just mention that I did look into the reuse of the makeup room from episodes four and six. Uh-huh. Lady Dies Green Room, I guess, also being the makeup room for the team in episode six. I absolutely see your point. Yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't saying you weren't correct before, but yeah, now that I see it, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm pretty sure that is the same dressing room. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. I I didn't obviously go back and look at it back to back like you did, but I just remember I had the visual of her room in my mind, and I was like, I'm pretty confident it's the same room. Good catch. Thanks. Oh, good. An even darker scene. And now it's night, and Dr. Howlett is just hanging out in his giant office, presumably waiting for Bob to appear, despite believing he murdered a man an hour ago in the very hospital he works in. A doctor enters to entreat him to operate on Jack, and is basically in total darkness until she walks into the half of the office they bothered to light. Dr. Howlett isn't interested, so the doctor plays to his vanity, informing him the press caught wind of the situation. So, just as with the Cursed Pen episode, There is zero police involvement, but the press is somehow Johnny on the spot, champing at the bit to... Chomping at the bit. I think I have heard that at least these days both are correct. Champing is the, like, original expression. Okay. But the press is somehow Johnny on the spot, champing at the bit to know if a doctor will or won't perform a surgery. I would say slow news day. But really, what else do they have to report on in Canada? But wait... The press are in the hospital, according to her. So is this a case of the show actually being two steps ahead of the viewer? Even though there's zero implication, is the show expecting us to piece together she actually invited the press just to put pressure on Dr. Howlett? Is the show brilliant or completely insane? I don't know. I just don't know. He takes the bait, so it's murder in time again. On the prowl for a victim, Dr. Howlett passes a police officer who takes note of him but will never be seen again. I'm tempted to call this the third example of background actors overstepping their bounds, but this cop is featured, so it's the production's hands that aren't clean this time. Back in Ravenbrook, this low-angle shot is not doing any favors for Ryan the Lion's pants, which seem to be getting baggier with each passing moment. To the hospital's credit, they seem to have dedicated an entire orderly to guarding Jean. Unfortunately, like the knife store owner, he falls for a playground-level trick and loosens her restraints, only to have her break a flower vase over his head. You didn't have to bother with this lame ruse show. Honestly, this being Canada, I would have believed it if criminals are simply released if they ask nicely. It's a little after the fact, but I have to ask, why was the desk lamp aimed at a plant and not the book he was reading? Elsewhere, we're treated to a critical scene of Mickey drinking water. She soon put in the legitimately interesting situation of learning Jack's attempted killer is going to be the one to operate on him. Awkward. (laughs) Ryan the Lion steals some OR scrubs. Oh, Ryan, please don't tell me you think you can perform that surgery yourself, buddy. Okay, is the reception area this dark to indicate the hospital can't afford electricity? I mean, it is much more atmospheric than the flat, even comedy lighting used in the hospital scene in episode one but you need to justify it. Have a storm take down a power line, leaving them using backup generators or something. Anyway, while the receptionist is on the phone, the Jean, the Jean sneaks in? Yeah, I came from back when I was calling her the assassin. Okay. Sorry, finished this at like 12 a.m. yesterday. It's okay, you're fine. Anyway, while the receptionist is on the phone, Jean sneaks in behind her and uses a paperclip to break into a cabinet conveniently, con- to break into a cabinet conveniently labeled, labeled, Jesus and uses a paperclip to break into a cabinet conveniently labeled with tape. Patient's belongings. Sloppy? Or selling the idea of a hospital without money? You be the judge. The nurse on the phone? Not a bad performance for such a minor part. After missing an opportunity to kill some skateboarders cast for their skateboarding skills instead of their acting, Dr. Hallett comes closer with a woman outside what I assume is the Bang Bang Bar, but he pulls out the scalpel way too early and she runs inside. 
Hey, doctor, this isn't brain surgery. Why are you making this so difficult? Another pivotal moment with Mickey, who clings desperately to a stuffed animal, I think, then hurls it in frustration. Riveting. Did you have any idea what she was holding in that scene? No, I have no idea. Do you? No, no, I'm guessing a stuffed animal, but we don't see that anywhere else. It's not like it was established somewhere and you can't make it out from the scene because it's so dark, so I'm just guessing. That's really funny. Nope, no idea. Jean, now back in her clothes, roams the halls with impunity because that orderly must have died. Then she ate the body. I got your back, show. I'll justify all of this. <laughs> it's almost like Mickey's a child where she just wanders into a scene and you're like, where did you get that young lady? There are no stuffed animals around here. Yeah. Whoops, spoke too soon. Because in the next scene, Dr. Howlett sets the scalpel on the edge of his sink as he prepares to scrub for surgery, but while distracted for five seconds, Ryan the Lion steals it, and Dr. Howlett is completely baffled by what happened to it. Couldn't have been the doctor at the station next to you, huh? You're going with vanished into thin air? You're on your own, show. Mickey informs Ryan the Lion he has to give it back because only Dr. Howlett can save Jack now. Fascinating premise, but... Dr. Hallett returned without killing anyone, so will the scalpel even work? It almost killed Jack, so can it just give that life force back to him? Also, if you're cool with saving him with devil magic, do you not have any other options back at the shop? Oh, right, monster of the week, no continuity allowed. Come to think of it, couldn't they have used the haunted pen to murder Dr. Hallett before any of this happened? Isn't that always an option, since only homicidal psychopaths end up with haunted objects? Anywho. Nice. That was a wonderful reading. Let's get Anywho again, just because I like that so much. And <laughs> total aside, but your delivery of, but Bob Hope is old school Hollywood, baby, in the Mataro episode. Uh -huh. uh, fantastic. <laughs> Thanks. Anywho. Ryan the Lion returns the scalpel, and whoa! How did I not catch earlier that Ryan the Lion managed to find the muscle tea of OR scrubs? I noticed that too. Welcome to the gun show. I think John D. LeMay has a superpower in which any clothes put on him just become goofier. I'm so glad you saw that, too. Yeah. Because I was wondering if it was just me, if I was making too much of it. But no, it's it's weirdly short, right? The sleeves on that thing? Yeah, yeah, I know. It's like uh, the George Clooney scrubs from ER. I think it even shows off a bit of a farmer's tan, which is weird since scrubs don't normally look like that anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, despite not wearing the mask dangling around his neck, Ryan the Lion just hands the scalpel back to Dr. Howlett in front of several other doctors and nurses, and no one questions who he is or why he's in the scrub room. Commercial break! Welcome to Crystal Ball, the segment where we gaze into the future and let time make fools of us all. We talked a little bit last time about different horror genres and tropes that this show hits on. Talked a little bit about the killer doctor subgenre of horror. Do you think there will be an episode with a killer clown? Oh, yes, I really do. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt on this one and say I do because it's such a classic. They they're doing they're hitting on a lot of the classics here with the like you just said, the killer doll, the killer doctor. They did the Halloween episode. How can you resist a killer clown? Like I actually was thinking about that after we watched the Killer Doll episode in the first episode, and I thought, they're going to do a Killer Clown, right? Like, yeah, I do, and I'm looking forward to it. I'm sure it will be disappointing, but <laughs> I'm looking forward to it regardless. <laughs> That's the spirit. That's the positive energy we've come to expect here at Friday the 13th, this series. <laughs> yeah. Now, do you think it'll be a more of a clown or more of a mime, especially since this being French Canada? Oh, I didn't think about that. Now I feel like it will be a mime, which is so disappointing. But yeah, maybe it will be a mime. Damn, I don't like that as much at all. You know, I, I, the thing with the clown is, as I was, as those words were coming out of my mouth, I thought, well, the whole thing that makes clowns creepy is not really knowing what they're all about. And I feel like if they did it, it would be like a, you'd see like the the guy underneath a lot, which you don't ever want to see. <laughs> like in it, my absolute favorite clown. The original Tim Curry one, of course. You don't ever see the guy underneath. You don't want to see him, like, sitting in his trailer after work, smoking a cigarette, you know, and then putting on his makeup and stuff. That's what makes it creepy, is you don't exactly know what's underneath there, and I feel like the show would screw that up, and you would see the guy underneath the clown. Like, you'd see him go and get ready as the clown, and you would see, like, like, like he would be a killer who 
would then go dress up as a clown like like the clown nose would be the haunted object and that would be super disappointing. You were thinking clown nose too. Yeah. Doesn't that make sense? Right. Well, it makes sense. But maybe for that reason, I'm like, no, it can't possibly be that. I know because why would they be selling a clown nose at an antique shop? <laughs> well, also that, but it just, uh, you know, the, oftentimes in the show, the curio doesn't have anything to do with the, um, person who gets it, I guess. Like the curio isn't, isn't necessarily like on theme with the killer. Right. But, uh, yeah, no, that did have the thought like, well, what would it be for a clown? I was, mm -hmm. I was going to ask as a sub question. Yeah. What do you think the haunted object will be? But no, actually, I think the real reason why it wouldn't be a clown nose is because typically the object is involved directly in the killing. True. And what would you do? Stuff a nose down someone's throat or something? You could. Now I think you're thinking too logically. That's too good. That's too good. Uh, that's right. That, that will not serve me well on this show. Yeah, no. I mean, for a clown, you're really, you're limited with objects. It could be the nose. It could be like a clown hat or a clown wig. But that's, a, it's got to be some kind of costume piece. I mean, it could be like a, a, like a, what is it called? Like a billy club or something? <laughs> wow, you know, you're clowns. <laughs> you're talking about the subgenre of police clown? Yeah, you know, like sometimes you'll see them with those things. Kind of. I don't know. It's Yeah, when they do a little Punch and Judy show action and hit each other. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's the only object I can think that wouldn't be like a costume piece. It's more of a prop. I was thinking a little outside the box, and maybe it's a clown car, and they just mow people down. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. A little abstract, I know. Clown car. Even though I proposed it, I, I guess I'm leaning toward it not being a mime, only because I feel like it would be creepier everything you were saying about like not seeing who's behind the makeup and then going along with that having them not speak so you never know what they sound like that would make it creepier but i think almost for that reason they will mess that up and not do it and uh, if you're not going to commit to an entire kind of concept episode where every time we see the killer they're silent i think they would not do that mm -hmm. so it would might be more like, in a, you know, what I'm just going to call an American-style clown. Yeah. A circus clown. Yeah, I, I think they're creepier when they're all in makeup and costume. And if, especially if the actor can pull off kind of a menacing face. Like, Tim Curry's performance in It was so brilliant because he could play, like, at moments, like, a really, like, kind of silly clown. But then when he was being menacing and evil, he was terrifying. Absolutely. Yeah. It would be really cool if... I mean, I'm thinking way too big for the show, but it would be cool if they had a clown that was layered like that. Like the actor could be really scary, but also be playful. And you, I don't know. I was just going to say like, well, don't expect a Tim Curry level performance from this show. But yeah. actually, they get a lot of good actors. Mm -hmm. They really do, both mm -hmm. young and old. They do. They do, especially for the time. But uh, I, to answer your initial question, I really do think they will especially considering how many seasons there are. I just don't know how they couldn't think of that. So you're going yes on the clown, and are you still leaning toward mime? Yes. I don't know. It's tough to say. It would be a mistake. It would definitely be a mistake, but it's possible, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I'll go clown, and uh, I don't know. I think the object's going to be wholly unrelated to clowns. I don't know, maybe just an amulet or something. Okay. I'm going with clown nose. I'm sticking to it. Sticking to your guns. I like it. Yep. A strangely bored-looking collection of spectators has masked to watch Dr. Howlett save Jack, so maybe he's not the rock star surgeon we were led to believe. Given that he hangs onto the scalpel like Gollum holds his precious, I don't understand why he has to request it from an assistant to begin performing surgery. The clock on the wall goes from 0 to 60. Interesting detail. Just as the surgery begins, Jean appears in the viewing area, so I'll give you this show. Although the whole premise of this bottle episode is insanely contrived, you've created quite the pressure cooker. And given that you don't bother justifying your plot points with common sense or believability, literally anything could happen. Exciting. In what should be a touching scene of Mickey and Brian the Lion worrying about Jack, Mickey's b banalities? Yes. In what should be a touching scene of Mickey and Ryan the Lion worrying about Jack, Mickey's banalities about not appreciating someone until they're gone kind of kill the mood. Ditto, Ryan's revelation that his parents treated him as if he had a screw loose is undermined by the phrasing, Jack, he was the first one to act like I had something on the ball. Were you having a ball on, Ryan? <laughs> Seriously, was that translated into Chinese and back? It's my way or the doorway all over again. <laughs> I remember that. That's funny. Yeah, the scene in the Cursed Pen episode, which they both talk about being afraid, was superior. 
In a shocking twist for Dr. Howlett, an assistant removes the cloth covering Jack's face, for some reason, and he realizes he's operating on his victim. Not to be outdone, we cut to the audience watching the surgery as Jean strolls in, again, and that should ratchet up the tension, but after a quick shot of Dr. Howlett, we cut to the shot that seems to be his point of view as he scans the audience. However, it appears to intentionally frame out the area where Jean just entered before panning across the rest of the spectators, so I have no idea what this shot is trying to convey, coming on the heels of the previous shot. I guess he somehow doesn't see his attempted killer, whom he doesn't even realize exists, and is currently deciding if he should abandon the surgery and or somehow kill Jack on the table with all these people watching? That's my best guess, but I really don't know. The way they staged this, they really painted themselves into a corner. Mickey informs Ryan the Lion no matter what happens to Jack, he would want them to stop Dr. Howlett before he kills again. Yeah, of course. Wasn't that the plan all along? Wait, are you proposing killing him? I mean, I don't think so, but I don't know what else to make of the subtext of this otherwise unnecessary line. Cut to a clock to indicate the passage of time, but this time we're looking at a normal clock. The last one didn't have hours. With no reference point, we don't know how much time has passed. It might as well be a title card that just says, Tuesday. Dr. Hallett's groupies look more bored than ever. The editing of the surgery is weird, making it feel like Jack suddenly spins 180 as the camera breaks the line. Nice performance from Luis Roby celebrating the good news that Jack is out of surgery and on the mend. When they learn that Dr. Hallett wants to supervise Jack post-surgery, this episode really starts to feel like a sitcom where a guy is on two separate dates at the same time in the same restaurant. I almost wrote that Dr. Hallett really doesn't need to use a scalpel just to slit Jack's breathing tube, but he kinda does if he wants to kill- if he wants to ki but he kinda does if he wants the kill to count towards- toward charging- oh jeez. If he wants- okay. Whew. If he wants the kill to count toward charging the scalpel. That's the thing about this show. Just when you think you've got it on the ropes, it sucker punches you and you go down hard. Fortunately, Jean shows up just in time, gun drawn. Then the greatest thing in the history of cinema happens. Dr. Howlett stalls as he gets closer to her. Cool. We know the drill. He's going to get close, then slash her. Oh, my sweet summer child, no. He moves close, then cuts her pistol in two. It's insane, and I love it. It's too dark to see her face well, but based on the expression on my own face, I know exactly what hers looks like. Did you think that was as cool as I did? Um, yeah, it also pissed me off though when she, he was like, come closer. I'm like, whenever you have a gun pointed at someone and you're gonna shoot them and they tell you to come closer, don't come closer. They're gonna take it out of your hand in some form or another. Just fucking shoot them. Come on. Yeah, it should be your cue to take a few steps back, really. Exactly. Take a few steps back and shoot them. Don't come whenever when you have a gun on someone and they say yeah get a little closer to me is that gonna be for your benefit never i know but you know what that happens in every story at least this story that had the conviction to cut the gun into it actually made up for how stupid her decision was i know that I, I know but yeah i didn't i didn't know what he was gonna do i thought he was gonna somehow get it out of her hand i didn't think of him cutting the gun in half but that that was clever on the show's part i did like that no it felt like the guys in dumb and dumber it's like, ah, oh, show, just when I think you can't possibly be any dumber, you go and do something like this <laughs> and completely redeem yourself. Yeah, that was hilarious. But I mean, I should have seen it coming. They did have him cut through bars earlier, so. Sure did. That's like, you know, oh, I brought a knife to a gunfight. Yeah, but it's a really good knife. <laughs> he then slashes her and the anguished scream she makes is like something out of The Exorcist. Like the differences in elevators, we've come a long way from episode one regarding sound design. This is no Victorian doll hissing like a cat. Mickey and Ryan barge in, scaring off Dr. Howlett and attend to Jack and Jean respectively, as we would hope, but shouldn't expect given how blasé they can be regarding dead and injured people. Jean actually screams at them to ignore her and go after Dr. Howlett. Wow, this lady is hardcore. She might be my favorite new character. I know, what was the exact wording she used? Didn't she say something like, don't pay attention to me or don't mind? No, she said, she said, don't mind me. Don't mind me. Go after Dr. Howlett. I thought for some reason her wording was funny. Oh, don't mind me over here bleeding and screaming. Just go after the doctor. I thought it was funny. Don't mind me. It's crazy, crazy that you bring that up because I had the exact same thought and I actually almost wrote that into the script. It's such a like old lady expression. It's so. I know. I know. I was so entertained by that. It like caught my attention 
was like, did she just say, don't mind me? Oh, no. She's like literally bent over, holding her body together, trying to muffle her screams. And she's like so politely, don't, don't mind me. Just go after Dr. Hallett. I was like, damn, she is hardcore. <laughs> she's just been slashed by a madman with a blade that can cut through a pistol. <laughs> <laughs> don't mind me she's like oh don't you young whippersnappers fuss over me i can fend for myself <laughs> i'll clean this up i'll clean up my own blood just please go on no that was funny exactly oh don't have a ball on i'll be fine <laughs> instead of calling on literally anyone for help dr hallett runs back to freddy's boiler room when our bumbling heroes actually give chase yeah because confronting him in the basement worked out so well last time how Dr. Hallett manages to hide from our heroes in an empty hallway with no cover save shadows, I don't know, but he leaps on Ryan's back and is actually thrown off. Mickey hits him with a garbage can lid, which he then cuts into in a shower of sparks. I know it's not the most impressive thing he's used a scalpel on, but I swear, it never gets old. Unbelievably, Ryan knocks him out with something, then seizing their advantage, they run away. Wait, what? Not even to safety deeper into the labyrinthine basement. In what could have been a neat little camera flourish, they open a door, the camera passes through it, and turns as they close it behind them. Uh, show? You realize for that camera move to mean anything, we have to see something when the camera turns around, right? You see all those guys with Uzis and hard-boiled? That's why those uncut shots were so exciting. Imagine that same sequence without the Uzi guys. A little less white-knuckle, right? They lock the doors behind them, then, in a moment I am certain George Lucas stole for the Phantom Menace, Dr. Hallett cuts through it like the scalpel is an acetylene torch. The shot of him kicking down the doors and stepping through belongs up there with some of the greatest villain entrances of all time. Our heroes are trapped and are about to be killed when Gene knocks Dr. Hallett down again and again they run off without finishing the job or even trying to take the scalpel. Even Jean doesn't do it, opting instead to just stare dumbly at him as Mickey and Ryan run past. Then, reality shatters like Waterford crystal on concrete. Mickey and Ryan run back the way they came, but choose not to retreat upstairs, to instead end up trapped in another dead end. Dr. Hallett pursues, and Jean simply vanishes from this plane of existence. Mickey actually proclaims, We need a weapon, and Ryan the Lion rejoins with, Tell me about it. I know this is going to sound cliche coming from an American, but... Yeah, get a gun. It would actually solve most of your problems. Ryan improvises with an old crutch. Actually, not a terrible idea. You see what he has to work with. Can you do a German accent for this one? It's from the 1980s Batman film. I mean, you see what he has to work with. I mean, you see what he has to work with. Yeah, nice. Then, in a plan stolen from professional attorney Wayne Jarvis, he insists Mickey hide behind a tiny defibrillation machine. Why is the word EAT spray-painted on the window in the door behind them? Was it actually part of the location and the production's location manager wouldn't let the set dresser cover it? If so, it either resulted in a brawl or the set dresser never wanted to work in the industry again anyway. Ryan gets payback for Dr. Howlett jumping on his back by himself dropping from the ceiling onto Dr. Howlett's back. So much for that crutch. As Dr. Hallett prepares to plunge the scalpel into Ryan the Lion, Mickey stops him by slipping a cardboard tube over his arm. Yes, I said cardboard. It not only works, but ends up over his head as well, and sends him stumbling backward. Ryan gets his hand back on what I think is a different crutch, and swings wildly, missing the prostrate Dr. Hallett twice. Your family never lets you do anything- <laughs> I'm losing my voice. I'm sorry. Oh, I got three more pages. Yeah. Your family never lets you do anything important, you say. Ryan is again overpowered, then knocked unconscious. Meanwhile, Mickey fires up the defibrillator. Louise Roby brings the heat when Mickey informs Dr. Hallett he forgot there's two of them. Again, nice delivery of a terrible forced line. As Dr. Hallett turns his full attention to her, ramping up the creep factor as he approaches, his face takes on a Ray Liotta quality, while his voice takes on a Peter Lorre quality. As he attempts to stab her, she slams the defibrillation paddles against the scalpel, sending Gozer the Gozerans? Gozer the Gozerian. Uh, it's a Ghostbusters reference. Sending Gozer the Gozerians lightning down his arm and all over his body. He and Mickey then have a face-off, in which I mean they see who can make the sillier face. Mickey wins, even though he's the one being electrocuted. <laughs> I'm torn because this is a payoff to the earlier setup of Mickey watching a defibrillator being used. 
On the other hand, why and how is this thing plugged in, and if it works, why the hell is it down here with the old crutches and Victorian wheelchairs? Hey, remember a minute ago when I mentioned reality shattering? I've described a lot of events since then. Which one was I referring to? Technically, it was Jean disappearing from our world, but if you guessed anything else, you're still right. There's something weird about the way Mickey bends down with Ryan as he leans over to roll Dr. Hallett onto his back. She doesn't help, so I guess she's leaning in for a better view? Why is it revealed Dr. Hallett fell on the scalpel? Ironic punishment? I don't think it killed him. Mickey did that. Oh, right. Mickey's a killer now. I wonder how that will shape the character as the show goes on and she deals with the complex ramifications of- Sorry, couldn't get through that with a straight face. <laughs> a man just died, Hill Street. So let's keep this one appropriately somber. Commercial break! Commercial break. <laughs> too little, too late, kiddo. I can't help myself. <laughs> nice catch. <laughs> I would love to hang out with you at a funeral, I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> I'm a good old time. Oh, Yeehaw! The, the eulogies you give. Okay, I see. How can we punch this thing up? Hey, hey, this thing on? 101 silly jokes for a funeral. <laughs> Full disclosure, this episode has really gone off the rails. Over an hour so far, and we still have the final segment, plus a discussion that ran long, plus material from the previous episode I had intended to weave into this one. All this despite a concentrated effort to start making these episodes a little bit shorter. Whoops. But hey, this whole podcast is the result of failed plans, so really this is all rather apt. So, I'm going to wrap this one up with the usual sign-off, and we will see you all in two weeks for the thrilling conclusion, as well as a follow-up discussion of the Killer Doctor's subgenre of horror that takes a surprisingly personal detour into Hill Street's reflections on her time pursuing an acting career in Hollywood. Until then. Thanks for listening, everyone. We know you have a lot of choices when choosing a Friday the 13th the series podcast, and we sincerely thank you for choosing ours. Special thanks to Joshua Romeo for original music and to Stephen Yu for original art. And be sure to check out the Joe on Joe podcast, the only podcast where Joe Slepsky discusses G.I. Joe. If you want to support our show, you can leave a review and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. If you want an occasional update on our projects, you can sign up for our newsletter at the Inner Demon Entertainment website. And if you want to follow us on social media, honestly, we don't like social media. We're not good at social media. But links can be found on our website. Take care until then. And always remember what Carl said to Frylock. It don't matter. None of this matters. Good night, everybody. Mm -hmm.